Let's pray together. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for a chance to be in this room this morning, a chance to sing and to pray and to greet one another and to give. We thank you, Lord, that you are yet speaking through your word, and we thank you that you would guide our steps and direct our paths as we seek to honor you uh, in our living. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we, we open your word with gratitude in our hearts, with thanksgiving. God, we thank you that you would feed us and nourish us for life. And so, Lord, we ask you, humbly yet boldly, to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear. Lord, we pray that you would give us tender hearts, that, that we would receive your word as a seed planted in fertile soil. God, we pray that you make our hands strong, that our deeds in this world would be as your very own. Lord, we pray that a word of hope and life would be found on our tongues. Lord, this is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus. And we pray together saying, Amen. Amen. Friends, please be seated and take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Today is our last message in the series, The Big Project. We've been talking about how God uh, grows us and how God builds our lives. We've been looking at the building of Solomon's temple uh, in the book of First Chronicles, and, and we've seen that, that God is at work yet in, in building us and making us uh, into the people that He wants us to be to do the things that He wants us to do. Uh, we've looked at a number of very important things. We, we've looked at the fact that God is a God of promise. Uh, that when we are dealing with God as with disciples of Jesus, we do have an invisible, immortal friend. Uh, and we contend with that aliveness. Uh, that we don't just get to live on our own terms, but that we, we believe in a real and a personal and a living God. Uh, a God who makes promises and calls us to be people of faithfulness. We looked at the importance of place. We saw that, that they didn't just get to pick any, any place in the world to put the temple. That, that God said, this is the place. This is where I would have you do that. And in that fabulous story, there's this scene where David, he fails miserably. And God, being a God that's alive, interacted even in the midst of his failures uh, to show his heart and to teach his ways. Uh, there was this great scene where, where an angel with the flaming sword stands above Jerusalem. This was the height of David's achievement. And we're reminded that above our highest achievement is a living God who judges the merits of our achievements and that we're called to live our life in concert with him. Last week we looked at the important concept of personnel, that we are at work and that we are at work together to do the work that God has called us to do. And today we turn our attention to the principle of provision, how God finances his work in the world. A number of years ago when I came to this church to serve as your pastor, some of you were here, many of you were not. Uh, I did great research, you know, I just wanted to figure things out. Uh, and so I, I, I did what most people do. I Googled things, you know. I called everybody I knew, but also Googled things. And in the Googling of things, uh, I ran across a quote from William Brackney, uh, who is a Baptist historian. And Brackney said that, that First Baptist Church Waco is the mother church of Truett Seminary. And I knew something about that. I knew that the classes started 
here in the buildings. Dr. Garland told me one time that he, he left a stately campus in Kentucky and taught his first class in a room that was decorated for vacation Bible school. Roger Olson told me that during breaks he used to take a nap on the pew uh, back here. Uh, he would. He would just come and sleep on the pews. He said, once I woke up and I looked up and I thought that I had, had awoken inside of a wedding cake. Uh, is, is what he said. And it really does sort of look like the inside of a wedding cake if, you, if you're sort of drowsy, you know, coming out of your, your slumber. Uh, and so for, for those reasons, maybe that's why. But, but there's broader reasons why he would say this is sort of the mother church of, of, of that great seminary. Uh, the, the seminary sort of began in, in the heart of, of Dr. Reynolds and and others who were part of this church, or at least somewhat affiliated with this church. I mean, a dream uh, of a seminary here uh, at Baylor. One of those people was J.D. Hudson. Uh, J.D.'s right there. and the, He's not in his pew. His pew's in Dallas. But he, he's, he's, he's hanging with us right there. And, and I remember a story that J.D. told, and I've heard other people tell it, so I, it at least it's partially true. Uh, and in, in the early days... Uh, they, were, they were having planning meetings about, about the seminary, about this dream to, to have a seminary. And, and he, he said, we were at this, this great meeting, and, and we were t- it was morning time, and we were talking about all, all this stuff. He said, Matt, they were talking about the Bible and theology and Baptist and all this stuff. And, and I just sort of paid like I was paying attention, you know. And then I said, we were breaking for lunch. And I said, guys, everything you've talked about, I'm quite sure, is very, very important. He said, but if you're going to have a seminary, you're going to have to pay for a seminary. And after lunch, we're going to talk about money. And that's what happened. And we've come to the point in the story where they'd been talking about all kind of different things. And it got down to the point where they had to talk about money. And in the 29th chapter of 1 Chronicles, money is dealt with in such a way that it is life-giving and joyful and beautiful. And the principles that we learn from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, they roll right on into the New Testament. And they're as current as the breakfast you had this morning. Uh, And they're encouraging and they're hopeful. So I would encourage you this morning as I read this text, as we talk about these principles, to jot them down uh, and let them be part of how you think about God and how you think about your relationship to Him as it relates to money. We'll begin in, uh, in, in there, uh, beginning in verse 1. Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. How many times has he said that now? I mean, he's really giving the boy a complex, I think. And the work is great, because the temple is not for man, but for God. Now for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things to be made of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, Because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, 
the gold for things of gold and the silver for things of silver and for all the kind of works to be done by the hands of craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate this day himself to the Lord? Then the leaders of the father's houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, and with officers over the king's work, offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever uh, gave to the hand of Jehel the Gershite, then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And King David, he also greatly rejoiced. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, now listen to this beautiful prayer, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, yours, O Lord, is this greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor, they come from you, and you reign you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O oh Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and before the king. I really do think this is a beautiful picture. I think this is a beautiful scene, and it, it's so instructive. Uh, and as we're going through today, I, I want to highlight a handful of principles that I think will stick with you. 
Uh, we talked about the children today. These are things you can teach your kids and your grandkids uh, as it relates to God and money. Because people get fidgety about this stuff. They get nervous. Uh, they even get sort of angry from time to time. But when you visit a text like this, what you have is a life-giving truth that just bubbles before you. So here, here we go. The first one is that money follows our affections. And sometimes our affections follow our money. Money follows our affections. David said, I had set my affections. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said very plainly, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, money's not just numbers. It doesn't just represent time. It doesn't just represent the power to purchase Money is also a very emotional reality, and we deal with uh, money emotionally. And many times, uh, this is an indicator of where our heart is, where our passion is, where we have set our affections. And there are times where what we do with our money shapes and molds our affections. And David said, I, I was able to give like this because I had set my affection on the house of God. When I first came here, I went to Amarillo, Texas to visit Winfred Moore. Darren Davis was kind enough to arrange that, that meeting, and, and we drove up uh, to Amarillo to see Dr. Moore, and he officed in this, this bank, this mirrored bank. Uh, some of you had been, at, been in his office, and, and, and we walked into Dr. Moore's office, and he sat there in this, in this big suit with these big cufflinks. He looked like J.R. Ewing's father. And he had this big, booming voice, and, and, uh, and I came and I said, Dr. Moore, I just need to know what I need to know. And he said, well, sit down, son. Let me tell you what I know. It might help you know what you need to know. And so we just sat down and talked, and he told the story from his perspective, best as he understood it, uh, trying to help me be a faithful and good pastor for First Baptist Church. Friends, he loved this church. He loved you. He really did. Uh, and we sat there and we talked for a long time. And then the parting shot as we went out the door, he said, Now, Matt, you just re need to remember this one, too. Put this one in your mind. The giving is always better when the bears are winning. <laughs> and I said, What? He said, You'll find out. <laughs> and, uh, and really what he was teaching me is that money is a heart issue. It's an affection issue. Uh, it's, it's, it's an indicator of where we are in our spirits, is it not? And David said, I set my affection on the house of God, and so I gave. And the people follow suit. Okay, second thing, we'll keep, keep moving along, uh, is that God's work requires money. Why did they give so willfully, joyfully? What did, what did they do with it? It said it was for the work of the Lord. This is one of those bottom line kind of issues uh, that, that without finance, there's no romance. 
God has called us to do some work in this world, and, and that work has got to be financed. Uh, and if you go back through the Gospels, you see this lived out. Uh, one of the places that I like the best is in Luke chapter 8, the beginning part of Luke chapter 8, where it's a description of these, these wonderful ladies. Uh, you had ladies like Joanna. She was the wife of Herod's steward, like this really important job. She was, she was sort of like a, a, a power couple there. You know, She was right there at the, at the base of power, and, and she had been touched by the grace of Jesus, and she started following Jesus, and, and she had resources, and, and Joanna, and, and Joanna probably had a, a friend who she played mahjong with named Susanna. I don't know how she met Susanna, but Joanna and Susanna, they played bridge together or whatever, and, uh, and, and Susanna and, and Joanna both met Jesus, and he changed their life. He touched them. He set them free. He healed them, uh, and in gratitude, Susanna and Joanna, mahjong friends, they came along, and, and both of these bridge-playing buddies, they started, started funding Jesus' ministry, and then it said in that same chapter, and there were many more of them, Many more of them. Jesus' ministry needed to be financed, and it was financed by grateful people who had been touched by his mercy and his kindness. And Luke, as he told the story of Jesus, he included a description of those ladies as a witness to the spiritual reality, the act of worship that is giving. Jesus had some needs, and those needs needed to be met financially. And those ladies, out of a place of gratitude for his mercy and his kindness, they met those needs. They gave to the work of Jesus as they gave to the work of building the temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And we still give for the work of the Lord, even now, even today. All right, that's two. Number three is that we can give both willingly and joyfully. Did you see the scene as we read this passage of Scripture? Were you thinking about your grocery list for later today? Or were you hearing these words wash over your heart? What a beautiful scene. It was a scene of ecstasy and joy. It was a noisy scene. Uh, th- this, wasn't a, this wasn't a pensive Baptist scene. This was a Pentecostal type scene. I mean, they were making a racket. This was a, a scene of great joyfulness. Because from a willing heart and from a joyful spirit they gave to God. Uh, giving to God should be like that. We should teach our kids that, that giving can be something that we do out of gratitude and joyfully and willingly. I mentioned to them this morning that, uh, that their parents weren't paying their church bill, like you pay a water bill or you pay your taxes. There's the act of worship they're experiencing and witnessing and watching. And it can be one that we do willfully, full of will, and one that we can do with great joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is a great parallel passage about giving and the spirit and the attitude of giving. That when we give money, we're not trying to cut deals with one another. We're not trying to work our way up. There's not some, you know, spirit of reciprocity. We're still doing it that way, but it's still wrong. Uh, And that God is who we're interacting with. And and in that chapter of Scripture, uh, the Bible says God loves a what? Cheerful giver. Now, God loves old grouches, too. He does. But this means God takes delight and pleasure in this free and joyful, willful act of devotion to him. All right, here's the fourth one. This is where it gets, gets kind of deep. You ready? All the money is God's. 
All the money is God's. First Chronicles 29:14, all things come from you. 29:12, riches and honor come from you. You give strength to all. It all comes from God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, God supplies the seed for the sower. It all comes from God anyway. I think if we settle this in our heart, uh, then we, we've settled a deep, important theological truth. That we are not our own. That we have been bought with a price. That all of our life, our talents, our passions, our dreams, how we deal and manage our failures... All of that comes to God. And we offer the totality of our life to God as an act of worship. And we say, God, you take the pieces of this life. You, you take all the scraps of this life. And God, you take this life and, and you do something with it. You make something beautiful and useful out of this life. God, you, you take it. In Romans, it's calling, laying, laying a, a, a living sacrifice on the altar. We spent a lot of time in this church talking about that. And this principle that it all belongs to God, it's a major part of that theological, that theological statement. Who we are and what we've got, it all comes from God anyway. And when David prayed publicly before God's people, he made sure to include that in that public prayer. Because he wanted to seal in their heart that deep abiding principle that God is God and that we are not. And he didn't want them to swagger around saying, my, my, isn't lucky, God lucky to have us. I mean, without us, look what fix God would be in. Look at all this stuff. God, how about a, a, a scratch and sniff sticker right here for our lapels? We'd really like a participation award, God, because we've done great. He didn't want that to be the spirit of the people, so he was, he was sure to pray, God, all that we have given to you, all that we have given to you is simply what you have given to us. And in this moment of joyful and willful giving, we celebrate your work in this world, and we are glad to participate in it. It's all God's anyway. Now that brings us to an important, important question. And that is, why on earth did God set up such an inefficient system? Do you remember Bobcat Goldweight? You remember the stand-up comedian Bobcat? Some of you are nodding your heads. You can repent at the end of this service knowing about Bobcat. The height of, height of sort of Oral Roberts' ministry, you remember when Oral said God would call him home if he didn't meet a fundraising goal? Do you remember that moment? Old Bobcat got on television and he said, why does God need to call Oral Roberts? Couldn't he call Donald Trump? Now that's a question you probably ought not bring up at Thanksgiving. It's sure to start a fight. <laughs> but, it, but it does sort of bring a lingering principle. If all of it is God's, then why does God call on his people? to participate in that. Isn't that terribly inefficient? I don't want to break your heart, but God is terribly inefficient. <laughs> if all God cared about was efficiency, we wouldn't have taste buds or magnolia trees. Some of them are slow in the choir. 
<laughs> but they got it. God cares way more than just efficiency. And God has set up a system where we can grow and mature and become the people that he wants us to be. This leads us to the fifth and the final principle, is that God invites us to give, not because he needs what we've got, but to test our hearts, to test our hearts. This is what, what David says, you test the heart and you have pleasure in uprightness. God wants to test our hearts and, and have pleasure in us growing and maturing as we grow and mature in this idea of whole life devotion to Him. Now, friends, when God tests your hearts, He's really not looking for information. It's not like He's surprised at the outcome. It's not like God has set up the world in such a way that He's got to give, like, uh, quizzes all the time just to see how you're doing. I have a nine-year-old son that I love with all my heart. I have a 10-year-old daughter. I love her, too. Uh, and, and we have all kind of fun together. Uh, and, and one of the things we do is we, we, we throw the ball a lot, particularly uh, me and Wes. Now, Molly's got this great left-handed arm. She can zing it. But Wes just likes to throw out, out there and throw. And there are times when I test Wes. I'll say, Wes, I want you to go back as far as you can go, and I'm going to go as far as I can go, and I'm going to throw a really long one, and let's see if you can catch it. You see, I have in my heart of hearts this notion that he can. But you know who doesn't know it most of those times? He doesn't. And I'll send him out as far as he can go, and I'll go back as far as I can go. I'll just chunk it. I'll be 40 years old at Christmas, but I can still chunk it. I'm gray-headed and kind of chunky, but I can still chunk it. <laughs> so I just go back, and I let it rip. And you know what? When he catches that ball, there is an ecstasy and a delight and a joy on his face. It's unimaginable. And he spikes the ball and he does a dance. You know what kids do? They practice their end zone dances before they practice their out routes. <laughs> and he celebrates. He celebrates. What happened there? I tested. I tested my son. In whom I'm well pleased before the past was ever passed. And so why does God who owns everything... Set it up in such a way that to get the work done, we have to give what he's already given us. You say, Matt, that's inefficient. It is inefficient. So beautifully inefficient that only God could think of it. He does it so that we know what's in our hearts. And when we grow in faithfulness here, and when we grow in, in willful and joyful giving, we end up with smiles on our faces that we can't even really describe. We want to spike the ball and, and, and do a little dance because we find our delight in God. And we begin to, in increasing dimension, look like the God in the image that we've been created in. A God that so loved the world that he gave his very best. That's why he calls us to do it. Friends, uh, it's no secret that I'm a baseball guy. I like baseball. It's a great sport. I, I really like all the sports. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, for ESPN was just starting out, I watched Australian rules football, and I'd still do it, you know, if I had to. But I'm a, I'm, I'm a baseball guy. 
Ben, no offense, buddy. No offense. Uh, I like baseball. George Will said, if baseball is just a game, then the Grand Canyon is just a hole in Arizona. I think, I think he's right. I'm a baseball guy. I grew up playing baseball with uh, my dad, always coached my team. I had great friends. Uh, I love baseball. I was introduced to big time baseball at Mississippi State University. And Mississippi State was one of the first programs to build a big, fancy stadium. Uh, and they had this place called the Left Field Lounge. Uh, the story goes back to this guy who was raising sheep, and he smelled really bad at the end of a work day, but he loved baseball, and he didn't want to sit with everybody else because he smelled like sheep. And so he would go sit out in the outfield, and then his friends started joining him, uh, and, and now it's this big deal. Everybody sits in the outfield and, and watch the game and barbecue and, and do kind of things that you can't do up in the stands, you know. So they're, they're out there. Uh, when the visiting team is in the outfield, the left field lounge, they all pull the tops of their smokers up and flood the outfield with smoke. <laughs> and uh, it makes it more difficult. It gives the Bulldogs a competitive advantage. And then when State's out there, they put the, put the tops down, of course. Uh, but I started going to baseball games there when I, when I was a kid. Just, just fell in love uh, with, with big-time baseball. 1990, there was a guy playing baseball for Mississippi State named Burke Masters. Really smart, smart guy. Uh, very bright. Off-the-charts GPA. Just a, just a great kid. Uh, and leading into going into the College World Series, they were in the South Regional. In, in that game, to go to the World Series... Uh, he had to have a big game, and he did. He went six for six. That means he came to the plate six times. He got six hits. The last hit was a Grand Slam home one that, that sent them into the College World Series. That was big time for this smart little nerdy kid named Burke Masters. Well, he got through college, uh, and, and he, his dream was to pray, play professional baseball. Never did it. He got him a job working in the minor leagues uh, in the office. You know, if I can't play, at least I can be close to it in the office. I can be part of, part of that. Uh, Burke Masters is a dedicated Catholic Christian. Uh, and, and all through that season in his life, uh, God was speaking to his heart, was, was talking to him about his vocation, about his call, uh, because he, like the rest of us who deal with the God of promise, uh, have, have an invisible, immortal, all-wise friend to contend with. And, and he was contending with the invisible friend that is God. And, and God called him into, into the service of the priesthood. And so, so Burke Masters became a priest. Uh, wound up in Joliet, Illinois. And then after a few years, he became the priest for the Chicago Cubs. This is my old Cubs hat. How, how about that? That's great. I was a WGN Cubs fan. Every afternoon I watched the Cubs before they got those blame lights out there, you know. Started having night games, some afternoon game with the Cubs. And uh, he got to be the priest, the, the chaplain for the Cubs. Uh, this has recently been written about, and I'm so, so glad it has been. Jim Dennison wrote about it just this week, even. Some of you might have read that. Uh, and the story goes that he was out there on the field one day. Uh, the, the, the coach of the Cubs would let him suit up in, in workout clothes and practice with the team. So they had a, a priest chaplain uh, who could take ground balls and, and who could take batting practice. And he just spent his time loving on these, these kids, many of them poor kids from Latin America. He's like a dad to a lot of them. And, and he, he'd talk to them about Jesus and, and hope and life and, and priorities and what really matters. And, and he said one day he's out there taking, taking some infield. He's out on the field, Wrigley Field. And he said it like this. He said, it was almost as if God was talking to me. Now, that's how Christians talk to secular media. What he meant was, I believe God was saying to me, 
I believe God was saying to me, Burke, this was your dream for you. This baseball here. You with a glove on your hand playing. He said, but Burke, what you're living, you're living my dream for you. And he said, and tears just started coming down my cheeks when I realized that I was living God's dream for my life. And it was so much better than my dream for my life. At the end of this scene in the Bible, David prayed, God, let this whole life devotion that we have just witnessed, let this wholehearted devotion to you be in your people forevermore. Forevermore. God, touch them, stamp them with this, put it inside of their heart. God, keep it there so that they live your dream for them. And don't settle for the little idols that are their dreams for their lives, but let those dreams come together in one living, throbbing dream in the heart of their, of their collective and their individual lives. Don't ever let it go. You see, when God talks about money, he's not just talking about money. He's talking about our whole life. And this is just one of those little ways that he helps us grow into the beautiful dream of living the life that he's called to live under his lordship and his reign. And friend, that's good. It's good. God, we thank you for a chance to gather in this place today. And we thank you that you have called us to lay our, our whole life before you. And Lord, we know that you're good and that, and that you have dreams for us. And we want to live them. Lord, forgive us when we, when we have settled for lesser dreams. Lord, give us a, a desire and a passion to be faithful to you in, in, all, in all areas of our life. And, and Lord, help us, we pray, uh, to do that, to live that out faithfully. Lord, we thank you for the examples of those who do that regularly and cheerfully. And, and for the rest of us, God, we thank you that you're still working on us and growing us, maturing us. We pray that you would do that even now. As we recommit our way to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to stand and sing, and I invite you to do that now. And as we do, this is a hymn of commitment. If you have commitments to make publicly that you have made in your heart, we invite you to come. If you simply have needs for prayer, we'd invite you to come as well uh, for the glory of God and for your good. David, would you lead us?